Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today I'm very excited to have on the show, and I'm sure a, a lot of you have, if you follow me on social media, on Twitter or Facebook, you know who I'm interviewing today, and that is Chris Johnson. And he, former uh, New Yorker, now I guess an ex-New Yorker living in Seattle, but a uh, little bit more about Chris. He completed his undergraduate studies at the University of Delaware, where he earned a Bachelor of Science with distinction while completing a senior thesis in the physical therapy department under Dr. Lynn Snyder Mackler. Chris was a member of the varsity men's tennis team, scholar athlete, captain in 2000, and recipient of the Lee J. Heinzig Award for Excellence in Athletics and Academics. He remained at the University of Delaware to earn a degree in physical therapy while completing an orthopedic sports graduate fellowship under Dr. Michael J. Axe of First State Orthopedics. Following graduation, he relocated to New York City to work at the Nicholas Institute of Sports Medicine and Athletic Trauma of Lenox Hill Hospital as a physical therapist and researcher. He remained there for the ensuing eight years until 2010 when he opened his own physical therapy and performance facility, Chris Johnson PT, in Manhattan. He recently relocated to Seattle to further pursue his professional career with Olympic physical therapy while taking advantage of a more active outdoor lifestyle in the Pacific Northwest. And in addition to being a physical therapist, Chris is a certified triathlon coach. Uh, outside of his professional work, he's an avid sportsman and races triathlon, races triathlons at the amateur elite level. He is a three-time USAT All-American, two-time Kona qualifier, and is currently ranked 34th in the country in long course racing. Uh, Chris is also extensively published in the medical literature and has a monthly column on Ironman.com in addition to his in running his own blog. And to learn more about Chris, you can visit his website at headtotoesystems.com. And that's head the number two, uh, head the number two, uh, toesystems.com. Uh, so Chris, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I, uh, I'm flattered to have you reach out and, you know, especially just to, to chat briefly before this went on air about New York. It's, uh, it's always fun to, to find out what's going on in New York City. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I, I would probably uh, miss it if I moved as well. So yeah, we all have we all have a love hate relationship with it, but you know totally. I think the love uh, outweighs the hate. I I agree. I totally agree. Um, so. And so you know I say this all the time when I have different physical therapists and professionals on the show. Like after reading your bio, I feel like like a lazy slug. I feel like I'm not doing anything. Well, most of I don't that understand how you get all this stuff done. Most of that was fabricated. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It, it it took a while, you know. It's just you know surrounding yourself with the right people, something that uh, you know I know you've done very well. Yeah, but I mean, even the triathlons and like, did you run Kona? Well, yeah, I raced it last year for the first oh, nice. time, and uh, yeah, I mean, everyone in Kona is fast. It, you know, and all this sort of happened. I, I told myself I would never get back into competitive sports after I finished my tennis career, and I had a uh, pretty serious knee injury, which some people know of where I had a avulsion fracture, the inferior pull of my patella um, that happened from stopping abruptly during a tennis match. And I, I was actually told that I would never run again and I would need knee replacements at the age of 35. And, you know, for someone like yourself who appreciates, you know, the pain literature, that's a really, that's a really 
troubling thing to tell a patient, especially sure. when they don't have the foundation. You know, fortunately, that's what sort of put me, you know, on the PT school track, and it was really to to start to learn more about my own body and to be in a better position to help people. So, you know, it, it's fun for all this stuff to come to fruition, and at day's end, you know, I, it's very complementary to my work as a physical therapist and performance coach. So, yeah, and you know, talking about that sort of knowledge of pain, uh, pain science, and um, one of the questions that we got from social media from Kyle Ridgway. Um, who is out in Colorado, he asked his question, and I think it's a very good one, is how do you integrate the knowledge of physiology and the psychology of pain in the treatment of athletes and, and treating tissue injury? And I think that's a good injury or a good question. I think, you know, what happens a lot of the times is, you know, we're starting to learn a lot more about how to manage people with chronic pain, but, you know, unfortunately, people are just applying this information to people with chronic pain. And I think that it's great and it's very applicable to anyone who is coming to see you in a pain state. You know, so, you know, I, I want to say this first and foremost or preface this statement by saying most of the, the runners, triathletes, multi-sport athletes that I work with are not chronic pain patients in the sense that we think of chronic pain patients. Um, they're more folks who are very eager to get back to their sport or activity that have unfortunately been mismanaged at some point along the way. And, you know, they end up basically rushing back or violating the RTF rule, rush to failure, and then they just keep getting hit with a, a litany of injuries. So I think the main thing, getting back to that question, which is a great one, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for Kyle and what, you know, he and, he and his uh, colleagues are doing at the PT Think Tank. You know, I tell people, let's call it what it is. You know, if someone comes in and say, you know, I, I had a fellow that I was working with today that, you know, he was told that he has plantar fasciitis and he has one of the worst cases of it that, you know, that physician has seen. And it was a little bit perplexing to me because I don't know how this was the worst that that physician has seen. I, you know, if he's basing that off of pain or what the case may be. You know, and just the implications of telling someone that they have plantar fasciitis, that's never a good story. You know, it's never uh -huh. good news. You know, so when a patient comes in like that, I say, look, let's just call it what it is. You're having foot pain, okay? These are the things that aggravate it. These are the things that you find, you know, give it relief, and let's work from there. And one of the other things that I tell people, and I put this slide up on my Facebook page, is, you know, the possible scenarios when someone comes in to see us as a physical therapist. You can have no pain and no tissue injury, and that's ideal. You can have pain with tissue injury, and that's when the pain system is working the way it's supposed to. You can have pain and no tissue injury, just as well as you can have tissue injury and no pain. You know, so I sort of walk patients through these different scenarios um, and they start to, they look at me like I'm a little bit crazy, but something's resonating with them. Uh -huh. And I'll go into a lot of the stuff that David Butler and Lorimer and Adrian Lau get into. Um, you know, and, and I always talk a lot about this, you know, in terms of triathletes, saying how it's amazing how all these aches and pains go away when you see the finish line off in the distance. Uh -huh. You start getting into context, you know. So I think it's really important to sort of give people context and not inundate them with the pain science to the extent that some folks might, um, but just to sort of throw it out there and see how they respond and stay in the moment with them.
You know, and the other thing that I think uh, more savvy clinicians or more experienced clinicians start to realize is there are different learning styles. And that's a key, that's a key piece because there was an article that Tony DeLito and colleagues did looking at coping styles with electrical stim. And they basically broke people down into blunters, seekers, and copers. And what I explain to a lot of students that come and train with me is there are really Apollonian and Dionysian profiles in terms of, you know, personality profiles. And, you know, what I mean by that is that an Apollonian profile is going to be someone who's very interested in the literature. They want to stay up and they want to really take the time to understand what's been done, you know, what what the logic is behind your treatment or how you're approaching their case. And these are the folks that typically will, you know, oftentimes be lawyers, accountants, um, you know, statisticians, very quantitative people. And then you can have Apollonian type profiles where, you know, these are the folks that I'll do a lot more demonstration, you know, give them more encouragement, may call them periodically during, during the week just to check in and see how they're doing. So I think that's a key piece when you're communicating this pain information. And then lastly, you know, I share my story. I don't let it consume the session because it's not about me, but just to drive a point home and, you know, just sort of getting into saying, look, I've had, you know, 14 major injuries, five surgeries. I would be, I've been told X, Y, and Z about never being able to run again, play tennis again. And I just remind people that the body is very plastic. It has an affinity to heal itself, and I'm, you know, living proof. So people start getting encouraged by this, and they stop fixating on, you know, their pain so much, and, you know, they start thinking about how they can cultivate the right, I guess, environment and context to start overcoming this stuff. Yeah, and I think, you know, you said some obviously a lot of great uh, information in that. And one thing that I think is really important and that, like you said, kind of comes with experience is really knowing a patient's learning style mm -hmm. and knowing when to meet, knowing how to meet them where they're at. Yeah. So not everyone is ready to get the full-on pain science explanation or the therapeutic neuroscience education on day one. You know, and, and so I think it's important as a clinician to be able to recognize that, to meet the patient where they are and not try and force something down their throat because then you may get pushback or the patient may just never come back. Yeah, completely agree. You know? And I think, you know, the other thing is I always ask patients when they come to see me what their understanding of their, their situation or condition yep. is. Just to sort you start learning a little bit more about belief systems, what they've been told. And I also remind them, I say, I'm not here to fix you. I'm here to troubleshoot with you. But with that said, I'm in a great position to troubleshoot with you. And just going into some simple questions, you know, during, during the, the subjective history is, what do you instinctively do when you, you know, to try and alleviate this? And it may simply be movement. It may be trying to do a stretch. And you start narrowing down really your point of attack and yeah. how you best handle that person. So Yeah, I agree. And actually during, it's funny you should say that, during the, uh, I was at Adrian Lowe's conference through um, International Pain and Spine Institute. They had a pain conference a couple of uh, months ago. And during one of the breakout sessions with Adrian, um, he's, he actually brought up the point that you just did is, and he does this with all of his patients, is he says, 
you know, he'll during the interview, he'll ask, well, what do you think is going on? Yeah. And what a great way to kind of judge where your patient's at. Because if yeah. you get a patient, let's say you get, you know, in your population, if it's a triathlete, and I don't know, the worst plantar fasciitis will take this person that, that the doctor's ever seen. Mm-hmm. So the patient may come in and say, it's the worst the doctor's ever seen. I probably won't be able to run again. What if I can't do that? Then what if this and this and this? And then, you know, you can kind of get an idea of where they're at and if they're at that sort of catastrophizing level or if they're the type of person who's like, it's the worst he's ever seen. Who cares? You know, I think it's, it's a great question to ask and it's something that every therapist should ask in that initial interview. Yeah, and it, it just yields a lot of valuable information. Yeah, yeah. lots, lots and lots. Okay, um, let's see. Let's move on here. Um, so another, we got a lot of really great questions. Another great question from um, TJ Janicki. He's a student at uh, Rutgers okay. in the DPT program there. So his question is, how do you manage your competitive athlete population? The competitive athlete is generally more inclined to follow through with a rigorous plan of care, but time is a huge factor. So how do you optimize outcomes for patients with rigorous training schedules and full race calendars? And what are the difficulties or pros and cons associated with that? So, you know, there, there's a lot, of, I guess there's a few different questions in there. Yeah. And- the first thing that you know I tell people is, and you have to sort of look at this, people get very wrapped up, especially in these endurance sports, um, is to look at the level that they're participating in. I mean, is this a professional triathlete? Is this someone who is aspiring to be a professional triathlete? You know, or is this someone who's you know, a recreational athlete? And the first thing I always tell someone, irrespective of whether they're professional or non-professional, is there is always another race, okay? And that's something that, you know, I think people always want to rush back to their sports and they just start creating layer upon layer. And the impairment list starts to grow and with that risk factors for recurrent injury. So, you know, I always, when I'm working with these athletes, I always say, you know, as we start getting into that question, which, you know, they inevitably ask is, when can I get back to training? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I say, well, there are certain prerequisites that are based on the performance demands of your sport or sports in the case of triathlon that you have to be able to meet. Okay, so, you know, for example, if someone comes in and they have a knee effusion, that's poor medical advice for me to say, oh, yeah, you can go and run. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really it's anticipating these questions and almost hitting them with the response before they even ask it. In that way, they start to get dialed in on your your particular plan of care. So, you know, if we take, you know, obviously running is something, you know, I tend to deal with a lot of injured runners. I say, look, I'll, I'm cool with you getting back to running, provided you do this in the following manner. You have to be able to tolerate walking. You have to be able to balance on each leg. You need to progress the leg over the foot in a closed chain without a wobble. You need to be able to do this without toe gripping. You need to basically go through, you know, a progressive, you know, walk-run program. You know, and along these lines, what you're really doing is mitigating threat and slowly increasing capacity consistent with the performance demands of the sport. So, you know, I think as long as you're just very direct with people, you give them a framework, 
and you anticipate a lot of their questions and just make sure they're hitting these milestones along the way, that people get back. And even if they don't get back as fast as they were hoping, when they do get back, they're going to be a little bit better suited to deal with the forces associated with their sport. Mm-hmm. You know? so, and I think that's, uh, that's an area where, you know, with a lot of the accelerated rehab programs and things that you know, came out of the, the woodwork, we rushed, we rushed people back too fast. Mm-hmm. You know? And you know, my, my first MO is to protect people from themselves because people make bad decisions a lot of the time. So I'm really trying to foster habits and decision-making with these athletes because everyone else, you know, in the medical and performance community, for the most part, and obviously they're, you know, good people who, you know, don't fall under this umbrella, but, you know, we end up trying to rush people back and bandage things, and it only does more harm than good in the long run. Yeah, and, you know, what it, so what is your response to the patient? And I see it a lot here in New York City, and I'm, I'm sure you see it in Seattle, but I know you saw it here in New York where people are very intense um, and they're very type A. Mm-hmm. And if you tell them, okay, I want you to do a run-walk program for 10 minutes, mm-hmm. let's say. I'm just making, you know, making something up here. And yeah. they say, well, if he said 10 minutes, that, if that's good, that means 30 minutes must be a lot better. So I'm yeah. going to do that. So what is your response to that type of person um, who has the more is better attitude to their rehab and their recovery? And I think, you know, this gets back to first identifying, you know, you should be able to, for the most part, identify someone who's going to, you know, fall under that category of being a little bit more type A and want to push it. And look, sometimes, you know, you learn the hard way. And, you know, I'll tell people, I'll say, look, my goal is to make sure that you don't blow up under my watch, first and foremost, you know. And any time you use the word, I'm going to try running, you've already resigned to failure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I say, look, we have to do this in a systematic but progressive manner. I'm okay with you teasing discomfort, but I don't want you to just go out and try running consecutively because you haven't built up the capacity to do that, and it's going to be a greater threat to your brain, you know. So it is tricky, and, you know, look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, you know, I win with everyone. A lot of the times people may not want to have the patience to work with me, but the ones that do definitely tend to have great results, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously that's anecdotal as I sit here, but, you know, I, I think the main thing is for, cl- for clinicians to realize that people are not always going to follow the advice that you give them. And I think, you know, with that said, if they learn from that and then they get back on board with the plan of care, great. And look, a lot of times if people are coming to see me and they're not following my advice, I'll discharge them because what am I doing otherwise? I'm just sitting here beating my head against a, a wall, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something, again, I think as a green or, you know, a younger clinician, you may not have the confidence to do that, you know? So, but, you know, generally I'm just, I'm trying to protect people from blowing up under my watch because... Ultimately, if they go out and they relapse, they're only prolonging the recovery anyway. So, and that's a key point to drive home with them. Say, look, I don't want you to delay your recovery any more than you already have. So, stick with what I tell you. Don't do any more. Don't do any less. You know. Yeah, and and what about um, the 
the people, because I, I get this a lot as well, it didn't hurt while I was doing it, but every time I finish, it hurts a lot or it hurts the next day, but it doesn't hurt while I'm running. It doesn't hurt while I'm biking. So let's take the example of, of the, the plantar fasciitis again. Well, when I run, it feels fine or like a knee. When, I, when I'm biking or running, I don't feel anything. But then afterwards, it definitely hurts. And it's strange. How come it's not getting better? Those are the questions I get a lot is, you know, it, it feels fine when I'm playing golf, but how come I'm not getting any better? Yeah, and I think, you know, that's, that's a great point. And, you know, I, I get that all the time, too. And you know, I think it's helpful to have a staging system. And, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, I learned from Bruce Wilk. And there, there are different staging systems out there. Um, his is just very simple. You know, but again, this is not a, an end-all, be-all. But, you know, the first thing I want to know is after that activity, what are they doing? Are they, gonna, are they sitting down? Are they falling into some sort of position that may be aggravating the situation? You know, and you can also have certain situations where, you know, people with, um, you know, tendinopathy, tendinopathy, sometimes they'll warm up, you know, mm -hmm. and then it's really once they stop that, you know, the symptoms will start to recur. So, you know, I think that you have to have a staging system and make sure that you educate patients on this. So with running, you know, the, the one that Bruce talks about is stage one is pain upon exertion. Stage two is pain at rest following activity. Stage three is pain with activities of daily living. Stage four, pain that's managed with medication, um, including, you know, injectables. Um, stage five is crippling pain. Mm -hmm. So that way you sort of tell someone, okay, well, if you're having pain after activity, potentially there could be some inflammation going on. So that tells me that, you know, perhaps you did too much or you weren't really well suited to, you know, to go out for the duration that you did or the intensity that you did. But I think the more you can objectify things, the better off and the, the more it's going to resonate with your, with mm -hmm. your page. You yeah. Know? So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, moving on. Uh, this was a great question from Laura Keeley, who's also a student physical therapist. I don't know where I forget. I know she told me. I have no idea. I don't Sounds remember. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, Hers, which she, her question was, she, she is an endurance athlete, and she hates being told to rest or take time off. So how oh. do you, how do you balance that? So she said she hates being told to rest, to take time off. So how do you balance that? And I think you touched upon a little bit of it uh, from TJ's question, but because you know you're going to get those people who are going to be like, well, how about now? Well, how uh -huh. about this week? Well, how about tomorrow? Yeah, I think they've all just, uh, you know, congregated in New York City. I think so. they have. I mean, I have a lot of them. Yeah. Like, a real lot of them. <laughs> you know, what's funny is that, um, you know, there's a fellow named Ted Corbett who is a physical therapist, and he won the Lifetime Achievement Award from Runner's World. And, you know, he's not the only one that said this, but, you know, he was asked once what he would have done differently, you know, at the end of his career, you know, basically towards the latter stages of his life. And he said he would have rested more. Okay. This is something you hear from every elite endurance athlete or athlete in general. You know, when they're asked what they would have done differently, they would have rested more. You know, and one of the things that, you know, I've been doing lately is really combing through the literature, looking at tapering and 
how you handle program design, you know, especially with triathlon because it's three separate disciplines all with different risk factors and performance demands. You know, so I think that you have to try and objectify things a little bit and there there's a couple ways of doing that and the technology is making that a little bit easier. But you know, I, I think entering a workout in an under-recovered state is a, is very problematic. So, you know, a couple of the things that I do, and you know, I'm biting off of Patrick Ward here, who's a uh, performance coach. He actually just went on board with the uh, the Seattle Seahawks as our sports scientist, I believe. But you know, he wrote a blog post one time talking about you know simple questions athletes as well as coaches should be asking themselves, and you know, stuff like when you get up in the morning. How many hours of sleep did you get? How interested are you in training that day in terms of motivation? You know, did you fuel yourself properly? You know, and in New York, the, the questions I'd be asking are, how much did you drink the night before? You know, so no. it's like, yeah. <laughs> so you know, and then the other thing that I uh, that I use is the Omega Wave system, and it basically I use it to look at my level of readiness in terms of you know how much I'm gonna push things that day. Um, it gives you a bunch of other metrics, but it's a very simple device. I have uh, one for indiv individual use, and all it does is take a recording for about one minute in the morning, and you have a lot of objective information that you can then use to plan your day. And You know, I handle, I write a lot of programs for people um, all over the country and the world, and, you know, I, I'm always trying to get it these simple questions so I make sure that we're trying to really hit the nail on the head but I think in time you have to afford yourself more recovery and you know just one final thing on in regards to this question if you look at the literature in terms of tapering where a lot of triathletes and you know endurance athletes you know end up things go south on them before I raced Ironman Canada three weeks ago I cut my volume 60 percent Okay, and this would freak a lot of people out because you know you're in a sport or sports that basically you tend to throw volume at the problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, and once you realize that that just breaks you down, you have no choice but to change. So you know, I started doing a lot of shorter, very intense efforts with a lot of recovery, um, a lot of sleep, fueling myself properly. So. You know, I think when you're young, you can get away with it, but in time, you know, once you start seeing yourself plateau, you know. And this is where pro athletes have an advantage because this is their livelihood. You know, the pro triathletes are probably getting up in the morning, training, taking a nap in the mm -hmm. afternoon, and then going out again. Right. You know, so I think that volume, throwing volume at, at the equation is really the death of uh, the endurance athlete. With that said, you also have to build foundation to a certain point. So, you know, hopefully uh, you're taking close notes, Lauren. Um, and this stuff uh, ends up helping you in your endurance pursuits. Yeah, well, I mean, I, uh, I I agree with you on not throwing volume at it. And as you were saying that, I'm like, maybe that's what I did when I ran a marathon. But in reality, I just didn't really train. Yeah. <laughs> so I was definitely not throwing volume at it. But yeah. I finished. Yeah. I finished without any problems. I had no pain, no nothing. That's um, great. That's the New York City Marathon? No, I did Chicago a number okay. of years ago. But... The lo I always tell people the longest run I did in preparation was a half marathon. Was a half? Yeah, that's great. And that and that's I did that in August, and then I ran the marathon in October, and and I I was fine. Yeah, and I I hope people make note of that. 
you know, and I, along those same lines, you know, before uh, before I raced Ironman Coeur d'Alene and even Canada, most I'm not typically running over 16 miles. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think you start to play with fire, and you don't need to practice breaking your form down because I promise you that'll happen in the race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, you know, That's interesting. Yeah. End up, you know, swimmers that we we call it garbage yardage, you know. <laughs> Uh, with runners and, and cyclists, we call it junk mileage, you know. So, you know, I would much rather take that time to rest or to to cut the volume and start incorporating some, some general strengthening exercises. That's, that's what I did. I was doing general strengthening exercises like twice a week um, yeah. with a trainer. And I think that's why, like, my, I was, my legs were fine after the after the marathon and I credit a lot of that to working with the trainer at Equinox and really helping to to keep me nice and strong so I I I felt like I kind of go through it and actually that's it kind of takes me to to a question is what do you because I know I see a lot of people training for the marathon and triathlons and things like that and they don't do any strength. I say, well, what kind of, what, what are you doing outside of your training? Like outside of running, swimming, and biking, or outside of running, what sort of exercises are you doing? And it's like silence. Yeah. So well, what, what do you say to your patients um, about getting on a good training program, a good strengthening program? What do you usually recommend? Well, and you granted, know, this everybody's is, this different. Is... Everybody's different, of course, but yeah. Well, and I, I think you have to realize that this is not something you can conquer overnight, and you want to start with you know a few simple exercises. But you know, I think one of the main things that doesn't get enough attention is my my main concern with having you know a baseline of strength is to first make sure you can get through your your day to day activities without getting injured. Mm-hmm. You know? Because I don't know when I was in New York, especially, and even out here, I mean, I tax the hell out of my body, you know. Just between treating and you know, I was just picking up and in trans, transplanting a few plants on our back deck. You know, you can't get injured with those activities because it's only going to interfere with your your training for sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think teaching people um, squats, deadlifts, pushing, pulling. I mean, I think these are great places to start. You know, I you obviously see me demonstrating a lot of single leg balance drills. Mm-hmm. Those are really important, just considering the performance demands of running and the fact that you're never in contact with both feet at the same time. Um, that's where I start. You know, and I and I tell people that, you know, there are certain physical therapists who are in a great position to work with you who may have a background in this. But I also think that the training community is doing a fantastic mm-hmm. job. Um, and I would say to reach out to, you know, to connect with someone who specializes in this that's on topic and, you know, for, they should be collecting some baseline measures and, you know, slowly but systematically, you know, progressing you through these exercises. But I think it doesn't need to be as complicated as a lot of people make it out to be. And it, and it can be very intimidating when you see certain folks offering up their program designs online. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think, you know, most of the time just... Uh, you know, even going back to as simple as like three sets of ten with these three exercises will yield a lot of uh, results with folks. You know? Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I just think I think it's important as a clinician just to make sure you tell your patients to do something outside of just running, swimming, biking, or just running. Yeah, 
you know, know the, the research, you know, is, is demonstrating this too. I mean, there's a, a big review in the Scandinavian Journal um, looking at, you know, and I just uh, put this into a PowerPoint format, but looking at strength training in, in running and cycling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of times people think, oh, I'm going to bulk up. I have to perfuse more, you know, um, you know, more of the, the tissue with blood. And, you know, there's no research to, to show any mm-hmm. of that. You know, it's actually, you know, contrary to that. So, you know, I think if you're doing concurrent strength training and endurance work, you're not going to bulk up. I mean, it's only going to improve your running economy and your neuromuscular proficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. unless people are reading other literature that I haven't seen, you know, which, you know, I don't think is the case. Yeah, doubtful. So. Okay. All right. So let's uh, switch gears again. This was a good, well, actually, we kind of touched upon this a little bit. And uh, this was a question, I think, that came in on Facebook, I think. And it was, um, what is is your training recovery management like? Um, My training, so again, a lot of this is dictated by that Omega Wave system. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that people have to really stay in the moment and really look at their their day-to-day activities as well as their weekly schedule because things can change rapidly. So um, one of the things that, you know, is very important that if people are, are training with any sort of intensity is the research on tart cherry juice is incredible, okay? I, when I was at the Nicholas Institute, they started spearheading a lot of this stuff and it's been shown to improve recovery after marathon uh, racing and training and improve sleep quality as well as reduce systemic inflammatory markers so that they looked at interleukin 6, interleukin 3 and a few other things so you know I tell people if they're if they're not drinking that and they're serious athletes that you know it's it's essentially a performance enhancing agent that's legal so you know with that said, you know, you'll, you'll also see people use the Normatec boots, which are basically these uh, pneumatic compression. Um, it's a pneumatic compression device that's very popular. And there, there is some research supporting its efficacy, you know, as well as compression socks. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't encourage, I discourage the athletes I'm working with to use compression socks during racing. I don't think anything can improve, um, you know, muscle control traction in terms of pumping fluid out. I think it's more post, um, post-race, post post-training. Um, so, but again, I, I think there are other people who are probably a little bit better suited to yeah. handling that question, so I don't want to start, you know, getting too far off topic. Right. You know, as yeah. Mark Twain said, no one's dumber than a smart man off topic. It's <laughs> funny. Okay. Um, so we had a couple of questions come in. I think this was, these were from Twitter from Clinton Lee. Is it Twitter? I think so. Uh, physical yeah. therapist. And he was, so this is kind of getting away from, uh, endurance, let's say getting away from in, the endurance talk for a moment, but, um, he wanted to talk, uh, and get your thoughts on patellofemoral pain syndrome. Mm-hmm. So he had two questions. Um, one was lower extremity strengthening for patients with patellofemoral pain syndrome when the knee extension reproduces pain? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think with knee extension, you have to look at this as, you know, are we talking about 
open chain, closed, closed chain, chain, what's the degree? You know, there there's a, a few different variables here. You know, do I think knee extensions are bad? Not necessarily. I mean, they may again it's it's such a context specific question. Um, in terms of patellofemoral pain, um, there is just a position statement that um, I think Brian Noren, Chris Powers, Irene McClay Davis, and a few other people put up. Actually, Eric Eric Vitro was the uh, lead author on that, and he's done a lot of great work, and he's really looked at quadriceps um, function or dysfunction. And you know, you get a lot of other people talking about the hip. You know, I think that lower extremity strengthening is important. I don't think we've clearly elucidated the mechanisms by which it's working, though. You know, um, you know, it, it's always fascinating to me because you can give people open chain exercises and people start having an improvement with a closed chain problem. You know, most mm -hmm. of the time, telephemoral pain. I'm thinking stair negotiation. You know, prolonged sitting. You know, stuff of that nature. Mm -hmm. Now, yet you can give someone open chain exercises that seem pretty, you know, non-specific, and people start to show signs of improvement. You know, Tim Tyler showed this in his study in AJSM in 2007. I want to say, looking at um, seated hip flexion strength as well as normalizing iliotibial band and iliopsoas extensibility, and if people came in with hip flexor weakness and tightness in the iliopsoas and ITB complex, and three of those three were normalized, people had a 93% chance for success. Mm. You know? And then you, we've also seen this with Mary Lloyd Ireland's work, looking at you know, hip strengthening in, in females, and it's yielded favorable results. When I was at University of Delaware, it was all about quadriceps function, and they would get good results. So mm -hmm. there's a couple common denominators that I think are emerging here, and part of it's, it's activity and exercise seems to produce a favorable response, um, you know, and I, and I don't know how important it is to get really specific. I think it's creating some sort of, you know, load and challenging people as they start to be able to handle certain, uh, certain weight. Um, so, yeah, I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I think a lot of what I see happening is basically the pain sciences and the orthopedic community starting to coincide here and I think that's how we're going to ultimately gain more clarity on that issue. Yeah, so. I, I agree. I agree. And, and Clinton had another question, but I think you already answered it. Was your thoughts on strengthening the glutes and hip hinge and isometric quads while minimizing squats and reducing patellofemoral pressure? Yeah. It, but I, I think you kind of... Okay. I think, I don't know, what do you, you tell me. I think you kind of answered it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the hip hinge is a great thing, and I think it also is, it can be troubling in a, in a certain sense. Um, look, I see a lot of people in these, you know, weightlifting competitions pulling heavy weight with a rounded back, and they seem to be okay. You know, not to say that they're not going to end up going on to deal with a uh, potentially catastrophic injury. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that you want to teach people variability, you know, I think nailing any one thing into someone's mind is not the answer. I think, you know, it's it's a good thing to teach them, but to make sure that they don't go around thinking they can never bend with rounding their back. Like every time I go to tie my shoe, <laughs> I have I'm, to do it in a deadlift. You know, and I also it, it's fascinating because, you know, when I'm on a time trial bike, I am 
not really hit. I'm hinging at my hips to a degree, but I'm also rounded a lot in my mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there for five hours, and I I feel like I have a pretty healthy spine, you know. <laughs> so I, I think it it depends on how you're explaining it to someone, how you're cueing it, things of that nature. Um, but I, I don't think it's an end all be all. But mm-hmm. you know, I think if uh, if if you if it produces the result of getting someone to move. You know, in having more confidence, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, good. All right, so we have a couple of minutes left here. Um, so I have one one other question, and and I always think the best way to kind of learn as a clinician and as a student is to kind of get into the head of the person you're talking to, or to get into the head of the other therapist. So mm-hmm. the last question is. What was your most complex patient case, mm-hmm. and can you kind of take us through how you handled that case? Yeah, and, and this, what the outcome was. And it doesn't have to be a good outcome, by the way. But you know, hopefully, it was. I'm assuming it was. Yeah, well, I won't tell you about a bad outcome. That'll make yeah. me look bad. Regret. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I I had a fellow that came out. He actually ended up in Seattle last summer. Um, and there are a few people along these lines, but this is the one that comes to my mind. Um, he was work. He was doing an internship with Microsoft, and he was uh, he was out here from the University of Pennsylvania. And he wrote a testimonial on my website that you could very easily find. Um, I'm not going to disclose his name just for you know HIPAA sake, but mm-hmm. um, so this is a fellow who who came to see me, and he was dealing with debilitating low back pain, and he's one of these classic patients who's afraid to you know, get out of a neutral spine, whatever that means. Um, And, you know, we just started chatting and I said, oh, you know, what brings you here? And he's like, oh, well, you know, I I have these herniated discs in my low back. And I said, okay, well, you know, tell me a little bit more. When did this, when did this start? And yada, yada. And, you know, we got to talking and, you know, he had been through a workup. He had an MRI, you know, he had it explained to him that these discs were, you know, the definitive source of his problem. And, you know, I just sort of sensed that he was a little bit uneasy, anxious, and, you know, he'd sort of tried a bunch of different approaches to addressing his situation, all of which were unsuccessful. And But I knew that this was a very smart person. Just, you know, he's at University of Pennsylvania in their MBA program. He's working at, you know, they fly him cross-country to work at Microsoft. So, you know, we got talk, got to talking. I said, you know, tell me about what was going on in your life, you know, when, uh, you know, when you first start dealing with these symptoms. And it turned out that he had lost a very close friend. Uh, one of his friends had passed away. And if I believe, if I remember correctly, it was, it was from a traumatic accident. And, you know, so immediately I want to say, okay, well, where were you when you got this news to try and say, what was the context of this, you know? And he was, he was um, at home in Toronto where he's from, and he was at his parents' house. And, and that's sort of what kicked all of this off. So we got to talking, and I started, you know, getting into the pain science a little bit. And he just looked at me like, "Wow, this is the first time I'm really hearing this stuff." Mm-hmm. You know, and he was he was challenging in terms of his clinical examination because it was really unremarkable. Outside of he had a thirty or forty degree straight leg raise, and you would start to see him clenching onto the table. And I've had a few patients who present in this manner, and. Um, I started off just doing some gentle oscillatory techniques with him in supine, very non-threatening as we discussed pain. 
And then I started working with him. And you could do manual techniques and do some stretching on his posterior lateral hip. And his straight leg raise would go from like 30 degrees to 90 degrees. And I'm like, that, that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, I started using that as just a barometer in terms of how irritable his situation was. But, you know, he was someone who, he was such an ideal patient. As we start getting more into the pain literature and, you know, just discussing pain science, he was very fascinated, very inquisitive because no one had introduced this stuff to him before and it was presented in, in such a way or I, I hope it was presented in such a way where you know it started to really challenge his working beliefs and I ended up working with him for about 12 sessions and over the course of that time we just started he was very interested in getting back to soccer and basketball and he slowly started resuming all these activities but it was weaving them into you know his his treatments and we would do silly stuff like I'd bring him in and we'd start talking about pain and then I'd just start juggling with him like throwing balls back and forth you know just taking him out of his normal grind mm -hmm. but where where he won as a patient is that he was very proactive he watched I brought the Lorimer Mosley mm -hmm. DVD in he watched the whole thing he watched all the David Butler clips online what can I do about pain in, in less than five minutes and he really reworked his whole understanding of his situation and you know it became more about okay well how much can I push it if I'm playing basketball it became less about okay well what about these discs and this and that you know and I would always I always would say you know he asked me if I had an MRI and I said are you crazy why would I get an MRI of my back I'll start finding all sorts of things and it was just really staying in the moment with him throughout all these sessions but what was interesting with him, and he got back to literally doing everything, and he still has you know, some tightness in the back of his posterior thigh on that right side, but he was back at home during break at his parents' house in Toronto Okay, after he finished working with me. And I always told him, I said, call me if you feel like things are you know, not going according to plan or if you're getting a little bit of pushback. And I, I had a feeling when he went back there, it sort of brought him back to that context. Mm -hmm. He called me about, I would say, five or six weeks after we had finished, and he was at his parents' place, and he said, you know, my back's starting to bother me. I said, are you at your parents' place in Toronto? And he said, yeah, why do you ask? I said, because that's where you got the news of this situation that tripped all this off in the first place. Mm -hmm. And he, again, it brought him back, you know. So I don't think I did much more than safely took him through exercises, encouraged him, and gave him context and a better understanding mm -hmm. or a less wrong understanding of his problem. And it was awesome. And he still, he calls me all the time just thanking me and it makes my day because I didn't really manipulate him. I wasn't pushing, poking, prodding, any of that stuff. And, you know, this guy's going to probably go on to have a, uh, a relatively good quality of life, you know, excluding other weird, you know, things that may happen. Right. Um, so but I was yeah, going to say, but you did, you did do one of the most powerful things that a PT can do and that's educate him. Yeah. So that's what you did. You gave him an, an education about what is possibly going on with him and you were able to change his outlook in the context of his pain. Yeah, exactly. Which I, I mean, that's amazing, and that's a huge breakthrough in someone with, you know, a chronic condition, and if you can do that, I think it's great, and then you got him moving. I mean, yeah. what more could you ask for, you know? Yeah. But that's, so, so you, you use the most powerful tool that we have as physical therapists. 
And I think, you know, along these lines, and I, I don't want to suck up too much of, of your time, but, you know, I, I think what happens is people are afraid to sit there and talk to patients because a lot of the times they feel under the gun to build Therex, to build NeuroRead, to do this and that. You know, when a lot of the times you're going to have much better outcomes if you sit there, talk to people, have transparency with them. Don't pretend like you have all the answers. Mm -hmm. Troubleshoot with them. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, and I think people are really receptive that to that. They almost they want someone, you know, like a box like Rocky had Mick in his corner. Right. That's how patients, you know, want to feel with their therapist. You know, so have transparency with people, and uh, don't blow smoke up. You know what? You know, <laughs> don't hesitate to tell them if you don't know either. You know, yep. so. Yep. No, I agree, and and that's. What a great example of how to be a good physical therapist. You, you, that sounds like my mother now. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. It's a great example of being a good physical therapist oh, and knowing how to meet your patient where they're at, knowing what that patient needs, and knowing that that patient did not need to be poked and prodded and manipulated and, and everything else. Yeah. And that's a sign of a good therapist, and and a and it yielded a, a successful outcome. So, yeah, and yeah. you can attest to the fact that I I think you get a sixth sense after being in New York City for a while, and you get to see the role of context and mm -hmm. stressors, mm -hmm. how this can really accentuate someone's you know presentation. Yeah. Absolutely, so. absolutely. Yeah. And on that note, we are kind of running out of time, so. Um, I'll ask you to if you want to give the audience any sort of final thoughts. Oh, final thoughts. Um, <laughs> it wasn't on our list of questions. Yeah, so <laughs> this is the toughest question. Um, look, I, I think that to be a good therapist, you have to hustle for your patients. You need to really stay on top of the literature. You need to keep a very open mind. Don't hesitate to step out of the physical therapy field to learn from people. And most importantly, just be a human being. And, you know, don't pretend like you have all the answers, but, you know, try to use the literature and synthesize it to approach unfamiliar clinical situations. And uh, never hesitate to call your patients and check in and see how they're doing because uh, that means the world to them. That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And where can people reach you if they have questions? Uh, I guess the, the easiest way is to reach out to me on, on Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email, chris at chrisjohnsonpt. Um, you know, the, the thing that I try and put out there for folks, and I'm going to start taking on another project here, which I, I won't get into now, but I put all those videos out for therapists to learn, to use for, you know, in working with their patients. It's all free, and I don't explain a lot because these are vignettes. I want people mm -hmm. to see them plug them into their treatment program where they where they think they fit um, but really you know focus on uh, focus on you know sound exercise at day's end um, and that's what those videos are there for it's you know what I think is important and just you know um, relevant in the field of physical therapy right now yeah and I before we started I had commented on how I think they're great so um, the videos are great so okay Thank you so much. And everyone, thank you so much for listening. I'm sure you got a lot of useful information um, with this interview. I know I did. So thank you so much. And if you have any questions, you can always find me on Twitter at, at KarenLitzyNYC. So thank you so much, Chris. Thanks again for taking the time out. And everyone, have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.